Welcome to JPAM's Closer Look podcast. I'm your host, Seth Gershenson of American University, and I'll be talking to leading authors published in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management on a variety of timely policy issues related to healthcare, education, environmental policy, immigration reform, economics, and more. The Journal of Policy Analysis and Management is currently hosted by the School of Public Affairs at American University, which also generously supports this podcast. American University's SPA, or School of Public Affairs, is the number 10th ranked School of Public Affairs in the nation by U.S. News, the number 4th ranked school in public management, number 8 in nonprofit management, and number 16 in both public policy and public finance and budgeting. The chief editor of JPAM is Erdal Tekin, also a professor of public policy at American University. Hi, everybody. Our guest today is Dr. Musin Gatabi, Associate Professor of Economics at UNC Wilmington. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm very excited to have you on today. We're going to talk about one of your forthcoming publications in JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management. The paper is entitled Universal Cash Transfers and Labor Market Outcomes. This work is co-authored with two of your former colleagues, Andrew Bibler, who's now at UNLV, and Matthew Reimer, who is now at UC Davis. And as the title suggests, this paper studies a really important question, I think, which is how do universal cash transfer programs affect recipients' labor market outcomes, labor market behaviors, decisions, uh, whatever you want to call it. And in that spirit, let's start with some definitions. What is a cash transfer program, and what social problem is it trying to solve? That's obviously a good and important question. A cash transfer is basically money that's coming from the government, in most instances, going into the hands of the public. Now, what problem is the cash? And, and when we say cash, we mean that it's not an in-kind transfer. So it's not just to buy food or just for housing, or it's not a voucher. It's actually cash that the recipient can use in whichever manner they see fit. So no restrictions at all on how it's spent. Exactly. There are no constraints or restrictions on how they can use it. Now, in general, when you say what problems are cash transfers trying to solve, it really depends on the context. Now, some people think of cash transfers as potential ways to deal with income inequality because they can provide an income floor. In other words, they give people a certain amount of money uh, that they can receive irrespective of what's going on in their lives. And that money is in most cases not tied to what's going on in their employment life, not tied to how well off they are in any other circumstance. And then there are some people that think about cash transfers as a potential way to deal with automation and the fact that robots may take our jobs and may leave a lot of people unemployed. And of course, anytime you mention a cash transfer, the immediate inference is are we talking about universal basic income? And is that the thing that Andrew Yang was talking about when he was running for president, right? And so, and to be clear, the role that cash transfers play in developed countries potentially is very, very different in the role they play in developing countries. Our context is Alaska and the U.S. But. So it's a much broader role than just poverty alleviation. 
Absolutely. Some people view it as a potential replacement for already existing programs or transfers. Some people view it as dealing with issues uh, that may uh, occur as a result of that automation. Some people view it as solving income inequality. And of course, as you said, some people view it as a way to alleviate poverty. So I think that there are a lot of different policy goals. And when you hear about a cash transfer being pitched or being suggested, sometimes the the policymakers will link it to any one of these causes that I've listed. Sometimes there are even other goals that are being listed as why cash transfer makes sense. And we're talking here about a universal cash transfer program. What does the universal refer to? Just that, that literally everybody in the jurisdiction receives the payment? That's a good question and an important one. Universality here basically means from using econ speak is to basically say that it's not targeted in that it's not means tested, meaning that you don't just receive it if you make less than a certain amount of money. You don't just receive it if you're over a certain age. The eligibility requirements for the Alaska Permanent Fund dividend, and the reason we say it's universal, is that you have to have been a resident of the state of Alaska for at least a year. Broadly speaking, there are some very, very specific cases where you don't receive it if you're currently incarcerated in the year of the distribution. But largely, if you are a resident of the state, whether you're a citizen or not, green card holders also receive it. That if you're a resident for every resident of the state in the month of October, you receive this distribution. So there's no disqualifications for past criminal record or past employment record either? But not past employment records. There are specific cases where there are disqualifications if you've had multiple misdemeanors a certain number of years in a row or if you're currently incarcerated. And so it's a narrow disqualification ban, but it does exist. And of course, uh, part of the reason I'm assuming that, that you began this study is that these types of universal transfer programs or universal basic income type programs are quite controversial. They're controversial, I guess, for a few reasons. But from your point of view, what are the big concerns or arguments against these sorts of policies? The biggest concern and the most often stated is that if we give people money, will that discourage them from working, right? And so, again, if you want to think about people's incomes, income can come from work or it can it can come from these transfers from the government. The question that people cite most often is, if I were to give people X amount of money, will that not discourage them from seeking employment? And so that's sometimes a big barrier in advocating for some of these programs. Not that that's what we do, but every time unconditional cash transfers get mentioned, concerns about their effect on labor force participation, on employment, get mentioned quite often. There are other concerns, but this seems to be the the most often repeated. And I think it's the most sort of intuitive uh, and obvious concern is that it creates this disincentive to work. So in your study, you examine the impact on how much and whether or not people work. You examine the effect of this cash transfer program on individuals' labor market activities. And so by doing that, you're testing whether this argument holds water, right? Whether these disincentive effects are large enough to worry about. Is that right? 
Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly what we do is that we basically say, look, there is this concern. It's often mentioned when people suggest an unconditional cash transfer or think about it. We have this program that is, as we've we've stated previously, is unconditional, is universal. And we have the opportunity to potentially evaluate if people respond from a labor market perspective to this receipt of this transfer. And so we basically put the question to the data as you know we do in, in most of these cases. And we study the labor market response in Alaska to the uh, receipt of the Alaska Permanent Fund dividend. And specifically, and you already mentioned you're studying this in the context of Alaska, uh, specifically the Alaska Permanent Fund Dividend Program. I believe this is really one of the, the biggest and most substantial and, and longest running universal cash transfer programs in the United States. Can you tell us a little bit about the Alaska Permanent Fund dividend? Uh, when did it start? How large are the payments and, and that sort of thing? Absolutely. Yeah. So just for a little bit of background, so Alaska is viewed correctly so as an oil state. It discovered a really large oil field uh, called Prudhoe Bay, and as a result of that, received still receives a considerable amount of, of royalties from this oil find. And so as a result of that initial windfall, the state of Alaska decided to set up what's referred to as the Alaska Permanent Fund, which is essentially a big savings account in which it deposited a portion of the royalties that it was receiving from oil revenues. And that fund is managed by the Alaska Permanent Fund Corporation. It's basically like a pension fund in that it invests the money that it received from oil revenues in stocks and bonds and real estate and all sorts of other investments. And the fund has grown quite substantially. As of last year, it was a little more than $80 billion. That's with a B. Now, that's the fund, right? And so, so the fund has was initially capitalized through oil revenues, and then it got invested really wisely. It's grown quite a bit. And then from that fund, there is a distribution that the public receives on a yearly basis. So the way it works is there is a five-year rolling average of the returns of the fund. So the fund is invested. So think about your... Uh, 401k or any sort of big investment fund, and that fund earns money. There is a five-year rolling average of the returns from that fund that get calculated. And then half of those earnings essentially get distributed to the public. And so however much those earnings are, a portion of them end up being distributed to the public. So just find that number and then divide it by the Alaska population and everybody essentially receives a check. So the fund got, got established in 1976. And then a few years passed between the establishment of the fund and then the first distribution of the dividend. So the politicians, some politicians were really concerned about, well, uh, we don't want to fritter away some of this money. We need to make sure that citizens are actually benefiting as well from these newly found riches. And so maybe what we should do is start distributing some of the money to them. And so in 1982, the very first distribution was sent to the public. It was $1,000. And then every year since then, 
Alaskans have received a distribution that has varied in size because the distribution is a function of those returns that I described earlier. And this is going to end up being a nice feature for our study. But you asked about the amounts. On average, every Alaskan has received about $1,500 per person uh, since inception. So since 1982, it's fluctuated a lot because earnings fluctuate, but it's averaged close to $1,500. And it's important to note that this is on a per person basis, which means that a household of four receives essentially four checks of $1,500. And it's distributed on an annual basis, typically in the first week of October. So once a year, you know, each person receives somewhere in the neighborhood of of $1,000 or $2,000. Yeah, this is really interesting. I just want to make sure, you know, I and and our listeners understand sort of the the formation of the fund. Those royalties are being paid by private oil and gas companies who are harvesting and selling the oil, right? Yeah, the state of Alaska receives royalties from oil companies. And those royalties, uh, for a long time, a significant portion of the Alaska budget was funded through these royalties. A, por- a small portion of the royalties now go towards the fund, but the larger portion of the fund now is growing from reinvestments. And the fund itself, funded by those royalties, is now very diversified away from oil. Exactly. And and that's, again, that's a feature that's really important. So the initial capitalization of the fund or the setup of the fund came directly from oil royalties, right? And so Alaska becomes rich, decides to set up the fund, takes a portion of the royalties that it's using to fund government and uses them to set up this investment account. And then the investment account takes that initial money and says, I'm going to invest it, but it's going to be invested outside of Alaska. And so all of the investments are in public equities, some in private equities, in land, in real estate, in all sorts of things that have nothing to do with Alaska. And then the fund grows substantially as a result of these investments. And I might have missed this, but do children receive payments as well? So every person in the household receives the payment. So if you're a child and you're born, for example, in December 31st of a given year, by the time October rolls around, you're eligible for that payment, right? And so there are interesting discontinuities that we've used in other papers trying to leverage when a child is born. But yes, all children are eligible uh, for the, the receipt of the fund. There are no age restrictions getting back to the universality. And so... But for minors, I assume that their parents... Is like there's the money like held in trust for the kids or, or do the parents have access to it? You apply for the PFD online. That's the permanent fund dividend online. And you have the option of potentially putting money directly into an education fund if you want. But But other than that, you can receive it and then you do with it as you please, right? And so you either spend it or, but, but I mean, it's not held in a trust by the state or anything. And so the parent essentially gets to decide how that money is allocated. I mean, I guess you've already alluded to, to some of this with the oil-driven nature of, of Alaska's economy, but Alaska's unique, not just in, in terms of the oil, it's also unique. It's a unique state in being separated from the contiguous 48 U.S. states, a different climate and different seasonal and weather patterns. What other differences are, are, are relevant to note 
uh, about Alaska's context, because I assume all those things shape Alaska's labor market in ways that are just sort of fundamentally different from other U.S. states. Is that right? Yes and no. And so I think that it's true that there are aspects to the Alaska labor market in particular, which is what we're studying, that are really, really important to note, right? And so Alaska is by far the most seasonal state in the country. And what I mean by seasonal is that, for example, so take the month of July, take take employment in the month of July, and it's on average about 15% higher than it is in the month of January. Now, that seasonality is a bit of a nightmare from an analysis standpoint because there is no other state in the U.S. that fluctuates in terms of employment to that degree. There are some states that have some seasonal labor markets. So you can think about tourist states like Hawaii, for example, that have seasonal labor markets, but it's not to that extent. And that's partially driven by the industrial composition of Alaska meaning the types of industries that are available in Alaska. So obviously there is oil and gas, but the fishing industry is also really large. Tourism is also really large, right? And so, and those are very, very seasonal industries, meaning that they basically not only exist, but they boom during certain months of the year, which means that the labor market also tends to boom in certain parts of the year. Now, I said to your question, yes and no, Because, yes, these are differences that are important, but at the same time, the labor market, as you know, is made up of individuals, right? And and the average Alaskan is not terribly different from demographic standpoint than the average resident of, of different states. And then when you look at, for example, the share of employment by industry, aside from big differences in oil and gas, the distribution of employment by sector is really not terribly, terribly different from average employment by industry in the U.S. as a whole, if you will. But there is no doubt that Alaska being different from a size perspective, it's twice the size of Texas, but it only has 700,000 people. And this big seasonality that I described makes any comparisons to other states very challenging. Right. And so, you know, because of that, you're going to use a pretty interesting and unique strategy to do to conduct your analysis within Alaska. We'll get to that in a bit. Before we do, though, the other sort of background information I wanted to chat about a little bit is that my understanding, at least, is that truly universal cash transfer systems are pretty rare in the U.S. Can you talk a little bit about are there any other even remotely similar programs in the U.S.? And if not, what are the alternatives? I guess I'm thinking things like earned income tax credits or negative income taxes, things like that. What are the other options and and similar policies out there? So Alaska is unique. So two things that are important here. One is that it's the longest running universal cash transfer, right? So there's there's been some attempts, like the the MIMCOM experiment in Canada, for example, that was fairly large but but short lived. And then you've mentioned things like the earned income tax credit. You've mentioned the negative income tax experiments. And then, of course, there have been people that have studied things like lotteries, for example. And then there has been uh, attempts to look at specific dividends, right? And so that are distributed by specific, for specific populations, right? Now, none of those types of distributions are truly universal, right? They, they target either specific populations or they're short-lived in that they're temporary and therefore they're going to affect behavior slightly differently. 
But the comparison, and, and I would be remiss to not note that there are experiments that are ongoing right now, right, in different communities. And so, as you, you noted at the very beginning of our conversation, interest in cash transfers has increased quite substantially. And so there are people that are experimenting with California has been experimenting with them. There are little experiments that are happening in Chicago. And there are a lot of cities that are trying to think about creative ways to get money to people. But the universality in most of these cases is missing. And the other thing that's important is that very few of them are permanent in nature. So unless you talk about an EITC or an earned income tax credit that's going clearly to a very specific population, or you're talking about even tax rebates, for example, and those have been studied quite extensively, or now, obviously, we've just had two years of stimulus payments. Sometimes people try to use some of these programs to say, what can I potentially understand about the labor market or about consumption from people receiving some of these payments? Not You didn't ask me, but in our paper, we, we warn, if you will, against trying to extrapolate from some of these targeted payments, because in most cases, uh, the payments are either going to a very small population or to a population that has specific characteristics. And therefore, it's a little bit tricky to try and take those findings and say, this is what we think is going to happen if there were to be a universal transfer to every resident in the US, for example. What do analyses of these different options typically find with regards to effects on labor supply, effects, you know, disincentive effects to work? So some some work does find that there are disincentives. The negative tax experiments, negative income tax, famously found fairly large decreases in labor supply. There's been some recent work using tax rebates that finds some declines in labor supply. The, the findings are not unanimous, but, but there is quite a bit of work uh, that does find that there are disincentives to work associated with the receipt of these payments. Again, uh, differences aside from our setting, but but there certainly is very good literature that finds that there are some declines in the short run after receiving some of these payments. Are those declines, you know, large enough to really make policymakers think twice? And I know the results are mixed. It's hard to speak generally about all of them. I was going to say it's in the eye of the beholder, right? And so some of them are certainly larger than I think one would expect before setting up the program. But are they large enough to make it not worth it? I, I don't know. That's a really difficult question to answer, right? Because it's, you know, for example, they, there are there are papers that find that, you know, uh, for every dollar that you distribute, 10 cents of it w- is not actually going into, you know, the economy because there are people that are not working. And as a result, it's a disincentive, meaning that the, I, I don't want to call it a multiplier, but the the impact is smaller than what you would imagine because there are these quote unquote negative effects that are happening. Well, OK, well, well, let's circle back to that then once we talk more about your results and, and maybe specifically like are your results, you know, w- what we think about how big those effects are. So you focus on short run effects like many of these studies do. What do you mean by short run? How long is the short run? You know, how far ahead are you looking? And why is that the right place to focus these studies on? That's a really important question and one that we've grappled with for for a long time. So two things. One, what do we mean by the short run? We mean basically the months before and after the distribution. And so we focus on 
what happens to the labor market in the months after the distribution, because obviously once people receive it, what do they do? But then clearly from an analysis standpoint, you want to know how are is the labor market potentially affected by any sort of anticipation or is there anything going on in the months before it? So we go, you know, four, five, six months after the distribution and we try to follow the effect of the distribution. Now, the, the second question is, why do we care about the short run, right? And so I'll start with this. Clearly, if you're a policymaker, you care about the long run a whole lot, right? And so, but the long run is a function of what happens in the short run, right? Meaning that you would need to understand what happens immediately after these distributions. And you also may care about how you want to set up these payments. One of the things that we've thought about a lot, and and it's hard to answer, is what's the ideal way to potentially set up these payments? So do you do them once a year? Do you do them quarterly? Do you distribute them in some part of the year or not? And I think by studying the behavior immediately after the distribution, you can potentially unlock some understanding about how people are spending money or what they're doing with their labor in this particular case. And I think that that's really, really informative. And lastly, and this is from a practical standpoint, is that the long-term effects of a distribution like the Alaska Permanent Fund Dividend is really, really difficult to do because, as I've mentioned at the beginning of, the, of our conversation, the, the PFD coincided or Alaska was going through a big transformation in the 70s and 80s, which makes long-term structural assessments of this distribution uh, confounded by a lot of other factors. And that's and that's really tricky. But, but I think it's, it's really really, really important putting that aside from simply saying there are some policy choices that can be made around how big and when we distribute these things. And do we do it, you know, in four payments or do we do it in one payment? And by knowing how people react immediately after the distribution, I think that that can really uh, reveal some good information about the decision that the policymaker faces. So, Let's uh, cut to the chase then. What do you find? What is that short run effect of, again, the payments are about $1,000, maybe $1,500, I think you said, and it's distributed once a year. What happens in the month after uh, those payments go out? So what we do is we basically say we're going to evaluate a couple of different things. One is we're going to look at the behavior of men and women differently because a lot of the work that we were talking about finds that there are these differences across genders. And then two, we're going to evaluate at two different dimensions of work, right? And so we're going to look at what happens to the number of hours that people work if they happen to be employed, and that's what we call the intensive margin. And then we're going to look at a second dimension, which is really important, which is what happens to the probability or the likelihood of people actually working, right? And so, and the reason that's important is because we have basically, you know, more than a billion dollars in some years that hits the Alaska labor market. And so we're not just concerned with this disincentives that we've been hinting at. We're also potentially curious about, is there some sort of demand effect here? You know, if you're dumping or putting a billion dollars into people's bank accounts, does that stimulate economic activity? And does that then result in increases in hiring? 
So that's essentially the context. So just starting with, do we find anything that would potentially suggest that the PFD causes disincentives to work? Well, we find that there is no evidence that men who are already employed decrease the number of hours they work. But we do find that for women, conditional on already being employed, meaning that if you're already employed, you tend to work about an hour and a quarter less in the couple of months following the distribution. And those differences are fairly robust to a lot of stuff that we do and we can discuss later. And then on the other side of the equation, we also ask this question about like, is there any evidence of demand essentially stimulating hiring? And we find there is no evidence that the the likelihood of women being employed changes. But interestingly enough, we find that there is about a a 1.7 percentage point increase in the share of men who are employed. So just to kind of summarize, because there was a lot of information there, we don't find any evidence on the extensive margin for women, meaning that no more women are employed post the distribution. And no less. What's that? No more and no less. Yeah, no, no more and no less. Yeah, that's actually a good clarification. But we do find that for women who are already employed, they tend to work fewer hours in the months following the distribution. For men, we find that if you're already employed, you're not really changing how many hours you're working, but there is an increase in the share of men who are actually employed. That's about a 1.7 percentage point uh, increase. I hope that was clear because I know that there is a lot of dimensions there. Yeah, Yeah. no, I, I think very clear. And, and I just want to stress on the extensive margin, on the employment margin for men, you know, the whole time we were worried about disincentive effects and people leaving the workforce. But if anything, this led to more men working. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, and I really think that that's a feature that's important here, because one of the things that you and I were talking about a second ago when you were asking about other studies is that the uniqueness of the the PFD is, is appealing from a research standpoint, because everybody gets the payment at the same time. And the size of the the injection is really large relative to the size of the economy. In the paper, we do some things where we talk about, for example, that the size of the injection is similar to the payroll of the yearly payroll of certain industries. And all of that happens in one day, essentially, because the vast majority of Alaskans get it through direct deposit. So upwards of of 90% receive it through direct deposit. And so to get back to your point, it's not just this disincentive. It's important to basically think about what are the implications of all of this money essentially hitting the street? And is there some sort of positive shock that stems from this money. And and the evidence that I described does say there is this increase in employment, at least amongst men, that is indicative of this positive demand shock, if you will. And it's important to to just emphasize that that 1.7 percentage point, I mean, we're not able to isolate it, right, or disentangle how much of that or how big would that number be if there was no disincentive, right? So that's the combined effect of everything that's going on. And so I, I think it's the net effect 
I guess what what struck me as being so interesting here is that, you know, we talked at the outset about like, what are the arguments against these policies? And we talked about uh, their, you know, the, the main argument was was disincentive effects and people not working. But then when we talked about like, what problems are these policies trying to solve? What are the benefits? We talked about poverty alleviation, uh, income inequality, things like that. But we did not talk about economic stimulus. Is economic stimulus or boosting aggregate demand, is that a goal or is that like an unintended consequence then of this sort of policy? That's a really interesting question because, so so two things. One is that the framers of the Alaska Permanent Fund dividend, right, did not, at the onset, did not think about it as a UBI, right? And so when, when they were creating it, they wanted to share the wealth with Alaskans, they thought about, oh, Alaska is an expensive state. We really would like to, to give people money uh, to help with, with expenses. But they also explicitly mentioned this idea that it could be stimulative, meaning that giving a dollar to Alaskans potentially is one of the best ways to stimulate economic activity. So it's really interesting that we are finding this because, again, the initial framers thought about it as oh, uh, let's think about what are all the things that we can do with a dollar and would potentially giving a dollar to residents be one of the cleanest or clearest ways of stimulating economic activity. We do seem to find evidence that supports that. But I'm not sure, I mean, getting back to your question, I'm not sure that stimulating economic activity, I don't think I've heard that being uh, one of the reasons why people potentially are supportive or advocating for some sort of uh, unconditional cash transfer. But it it might happen nonetheless. And I mean, it, it reminds me a lot of the discussion about the stimulus checks that went out during the COVID pandemic and recession. And those stimulus checks were a similar size to the disbursements here in Alaska of a you know a thousand dollars or so, and from what I've seen, you know estimates there found a, a they stimulated aggregate aggregate demand. The money was spent, so I think that aligns with what you're finding here. I think, and I think that's a really interesting sort of you know maybe unintended consequence or whatever you want to say, sort of side effect or side benefit of these policies. So we'll we'll dig into the results a little bit deeper in a bit. Before we do that, I wanted to. Ask you about the data that you're using here. You're using the CPS, which is the Current Population Survey. This is all publicly available from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Is that right? You're you're absolutely correct. The CPS is is publicly available. It's a monthly survey, and for our purposes, it's obviously an ideal type of survey because because of two things. One, it's monthly, and as we're going to talk about, I'm sure we have this distribution that happens most years in October, and then importantly, it has data by state, right? And so they interview uh, some sixty thousand households typically, and those households reside in different states. So we have a reasonably sized sample of Alaskans that are being asked about their work patterns and hours worked 
and you know whether or not they're actually employed. And that's obviously what we end up using in the analysis. And so two dimensions that are important for our analysis are the timing of the, the PFD and obviously how many people are you know in our sample. And the CPS kind of has both check marks there. It's publicly available. It has a bunch of really detailed questions about uh, a person's labor market activities. And then we have it for every state. And given that Alaska is a small state, we actually have quite a few respondents in the state of Alaska, which means that uh, that we have a decent sample size there as well. So you have the monthly data you need for a large and representative sample of Alaskans. So briefly, you know, and, and you've touched on this, there's variation in the size of the payment that I guess is caused by the the market returns to the fund. And that's going to help you isolate the effect of the cash transfer. But it still is a little bit, I guess, tough to think about. Like, there's no natural control group or comparison group here since Alaska is, is, is unique in the ways we've discussed. So how do you go about isolating the causal effect of the cash transfers if everyone in the state or almost everyone in the state receives it? Yeah. So obviously you've highlighted the challenge, right? And so so we, we have a couple of things. As you said, difference in difference or comparing before and after across states is one of the most popular ways of estimating causal effects. In this particular case that obviously uh, we highlight in the paper and we've talked about it here that you can't really use other states as comparison units because of these differences in in seasonality in particular that are fairly pronounced. And so we're really going to focus on two dimensions, right? And so we're going to have, obviously, one of the really important things is that the fact that the PFD is distributed in October is not because of any labor market reasons. It's really because of administrative purposes when in that first year when the checks were going out, that's when they got everything ready. And so checks just started getting distributed in October, right? And so we have basically temporal variation within the year, right? And so we're going to to think about it as almost like after October, before October, right? And so we have some months after the distribution, some months before, And then we're going to combine this variation, so this within-year variation, with the what you referred to earlier, which is this variation in the size of the the PFD. And so we're basically going to be saying, okay, PFD amounts vary from year to year. Importantly, they don't vary because of things that are happening in the Alaska economy. They vary because of the returns of the fund that is invested outside of Alaska. So you have this exogenous shock that's essentially affecting how much people are receiving. And so we're going to combine, if you will, interannual variation with the intraannual variation. And we're going to be asking essentially, how does an additional $1,000 in the size of the PFD affect labor market activity in the months after the PFD is distributed, right? So think about it as a creative way to do an event study where you don't have, as you said, a natural comparison group. And so you're taking advantage of these two dimensions, the size of the PFD and the before and after within the year. And so you're basically saying, is labor market activity in the months after the distribution different 
than it is in the months before the distribution, given that we have this variation in, in the amount. And so we do, we, we, we recover month specific uh, estimates, if you will. And then we do a, a, a classic pre-post where we kind of average the effects. And so I guess in a way, it's almost like you're saying that the, the size of the payment is sort of randomly fluctuating in a way due to the broader market that has nothing to do with what the Alaska economy is doing. Absolutely. And I mean, that that's a really important point that I that I try to emphasize every time I talk about the Alaska Permanent Fund dividend is that you would be potentially concerned that, oh, you know, it's a it's a big amount that's come in. And so it's because the Alaska economy is doing well or badly or because the oil sector is doing well or badly. But again, the share of the uh, or the the portion of the fund that is affected by the oil industry today is very very small and so therefore the amount which is this 5 year roll in average is really coming from these investments that are completely outside of the state of Alaska and so this randomness as you refer to it is an important feature and obviously gives us this nice variation from year to year well, it was great foresight they had to uh, diversify the fund away from from just oil both for the research opportunities, but more importantly, just for the for the benefit of Alaskans. It really is an incredible program. I mean, when, when you think about it, the diversification is remarkable. And as you said, really, the foresight is something that is worth studying and thinking about because, I mean, they, they mentioned specific, when you read the detailed documents, they mentioned specifically not frittering away money, saving it for Alaskans, distributing it in a way that makes sense. And again, it's a state that does not have an income tax, that does not have a sales tax, and now has this savings account that's a rainy day fund that's come in handy over the last few years when, you know, the, the state's finances were struggling as a result of the decline in oil. But but there is no doubt that it's lived. I mean, the, the program is is uh, uh, more than 40 years old or 40 years old this year, essentially, and, and is incredibly popular. So, I mean, the, the obvious concern that I first had then turns out not to really be a concern, which is that the, the size of the payments would be tied to the status of the Alaskan economy. If that's not a big concern, are what what are the other threats to your analysis or concerns that you that you might have had with with this approach? No, I mean that, that's I, I, again. I think that the the most natural concern is well, you're not comparing to what's going on in other places, right? So there could be something that I mean, as economists, as po- policy uh, people, we think well, maybe there is something that's correlated with the size of the PFD that's also correlated with the size of with what's going on in the Alaska economy. So what we do is we basically say, okay, well. We don't know what that threat really is. <laughs> it's tough to articulate, but let's try and potentially alleviate these concerns. And so we do a couple of things. We say, okay, let's, we can't do a typical difference in difference. Let's do what's referred to as a, as a placebo exercise. And what does that mean in our context is let's essentially treat every other state in the country as though it's receiving the PFD. Let's recover these estimates, right? And so clearly other states are not receiving this distribution, right? And so and so let's essentially rerun the analysis that we just described for these other states. Let's look at the distribution of the estimates that we're getting and let's compare them to the estimates that we're getting for Alaska. Essentially, this is a way of basically saying, is the effect we're receiving for Alaska outsized or how likely 
are we to get this effect if we're just getting it by chance, right? And so, so how similar or dissimilar would the, the estimates be for these other places, given that they're not receiving it? And I think we really get very compelling evidence there that the we're not getting this effect by chance in that none of the estimates we're receiving or we get when we redo the analysis for every state is anywhere close to the ones that we just described in Alaska. And so that, to me, is probably the most compelling figure where we show this distribution of these estimates across these other states. And we we see that there is this outsized the fact that's coming from Alaska. And, and we explain that to, to us, that's the, the PFD effect. And then we also say, well, let's, if that's not compelling enough, let's kind of try to deal with some of these problems we've laid out again. So Alaska is an oil state and Alaska has seasonality. What if we did uh, a traditional difference in difference, but rather than compare Alaska to just every state, let's kind of create units that are a little more homogenous or a little more similar to Alaska. So we do two exercises. We say, okay, let's compare Alaska to just oil states, right? Traditional oil states, ones whose economies are much more dependent on oil. And then we do a second exercise and say, let's find the states that have the most seasonal economies and let's compare Alaska to them in fairly traditional diff and diff exercises. And the results are very, very similar to our main estimates, right? And so, so we try to, to kind of go through what are the potential issues and address them, one through this placebo exercise, and then another one where we say, uh, yes, Alaska is different, but maybe we can create groups that potentially are more similar to Alaska than the average U.S. state. And I think that, I hope that through these exercises, we alleviate whatever concerns that one may have in reading our rather unconventional way of doing an event study. So I find it quite compelling. I, I really like the placebo exercise that you do. I think that style of placebos or randomization inference is, um, I think, probably going to be more and more common in the future of all of these sorts of, of studies showing that the results are not a fluke. So I agree that I, I do think the results are quite compelling and I think they're quite interesting. So let's, um, we're slowly running out of time here. I want to get back to the results a little bit and, and dig into some of the, the subtleties there. The gender difference is, is pretty notable. Specifically for women, they cut back their hours a little bit. That makes sense to me, I think, and I'm curious what you think about the, the reason is, but the money is, is enough to let you scale back your hours a little bit, but it's not so much money that you would outright quit your job. Is that sort of how you think about it? I think that that's a, that's a fair characterization. I think what's interesting, and, and you're right, that the heterogeneity results are really interesting Caution, obviously, that sample size, once you start splitting the sample a million different ways, sample sizes become a problem. But I think that this is a result that we've thought about a lot. So as you said, so the payment is clearly not big enough to stop working. It is big enough to maybe scale back a little bit. What's, what's I think, even more interesting about the, the, the result for women is that these results are particularly pronounced for younger women and women with children. And they're even stronger for women with children under the age of five, right? And so clearly we can't really say, you know, 
that women are working fewer hours in order to take care of the children, but it certainly seems to be suggestive of that, right? And so, meaning that one inference, and this is obviously going beyond the, the, the scope of the paper, is that even if we are finding some of these quote-unquote disincentives, it's not amongst the group that people are concerned about typically, right? Which is young men or something, but we're finding them among women who are potentially doing something even more important with their time than working, right? Which is potentially caring for their kids. And it's for women who have these younger children. So I think that nuance to me was really kind of eye-opening and potentially this, these heterogeneity exercises are really, really important to try and address some of these concerns about disincentives or what are people doing with the money or how are they spending some of these resources and are the people that, are, that we're concerned about. If the stereotypical response is, you know, a 20-some-year-old is going to be playing video games in their basement, we don't find evidence for that, right? And, and to your point, we don't actually find evidence of people quitting work, right? When we do find disincentives, it's amongst uh, women who are reducing the number of hours. And it's 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 a reduction by, like I said, about an hour and a quarter a week for, for a couple of months. And it's amongst women who have these younger children. And so potentially the, the decrease in hours is to do something that is productive or to basically buy back your time, right, in order to spend time with, with loved ones. And so I think it's it's an interesting result. Yeah. Yeah, it would be interesting to maybe look at like time diary or time use data. I can imagine it, it is literal childcare. I can also mention for parents of toddlers that, that that hour is just like taking a nap or sort of like self-time, self-care time as well. Either way, it's arguably productive time, certainly more productive than the video game story. And I think end peeling that onion would be really interesting. I mean, obviously... It the data we use is is not conducive to doing that, but 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 I think but I completely agree that it's that it's interesting and certainly kind of goes against the myth of who's potentially affected by this distribution. But yeah. The other dimension of heterogeneity that you look at besides gender and family composition is uh, household income, or, or I guess more specifically the the wage level of the individuals. I think. My prior is that you'd expect to see larger effects for lower income households. Is that what you expected? And, and do you find any differences by household income level? It's interesting to to ask that question because I think it's a priori you go, yeah, maybe this the distribution should be most important to lower income individuals. When you start slicing and dicing again, the, the caveats being the size of the sample, we don't find the lowest income earners are the most affected. We almost find that there is the effect is, is more pronounced along the middle. But I find them hard to think about because I'm, I'm trying to think about industry and I'm trying to think about this gender conversation that we were having. I think that the, the wage part is really the hardest for me to kind of speak about clearly because I just... I'm, I'm trying to reconcile them with, again, slicing the data in a lot of different ways. I think that the, the gender breakdown, the, the, the part-time, full-time conversation makes a lot of sense to me. And then once we start slicing by earnings, I go, is this related to industry? Is this related to gender? And, and it becomes hard for me to, to kind of make sense of, if you will. The other big issue there is, do people even have the ability to choose their hours? Or are they locked into a 40-hour schedule and that's that? 
And that can vary across the income level gradient too. Exactly. And so the type of work that you have and how much flexibility do you have, right? And so there is obviously a lot of work about flexibility. Uh, so shifts and hours and, you know, who gets who gets to pick and who's assigned and, you know, that's a, a little bit tricky. But. So to wrap up then, you know, my reading of your findings is that these are, are pretty modest reductions, very modest reductions in hours worked for female recipients that aren't necessarily problematic in the sense that modest time spent not working is probably redirected either towards childcare or self-care of these mothers of young children. And then for men, if anything, there's a small net boost in employment, but nothing on the hours margin. And so all of this together, it seems like a pretty strong rebuttal of the argument that there's a big disincentive effect of, of universal cash transfers. Is that a reasonable sort of uh, summation of your findings or, or anything you'd add or, or change? I think it's a fair summation. I think that you've hit on the important points, which is, yes, uh, there is this demand effect, if you will, that really does not get discussed very often, as we've highlighted earlier. And that we do find evidence that there is this demand channel that causes an increase in the likelihood of working for men. We do find, as you said, fairly modest decreases in hours worked, and they're fairly concentrated amongst a, a group that I, I don't think most people would expect at, at, the, at the onset, or, or at least they're not consistent. The group that reduces the hours is not consistent with who we think is going to potentially reduce the hours. And as you said, if we allow ourselves to infer what does that mean, it does seem like those reductions in hours are going towards productive uses, right? And so if that's, again, what we're concerned about. One thing that's important, however, to note as a limitation, if you will, is that, you know, the, the size of the, the Alaska Permanent Fund dividend, while large, is smaller than, you know, uh, what we've heard proposed in the past few years as a universal basic income. So extrapolations from, you know, a, a dividend that varies between one and $3,000 or one and $2,500 is, it, it's difficult to go from, you know, what are the disincentive effects as a result of the Alaska Permanent Fund dividend to what are the potential disincentive effects if this is triple the amount or quadruple the amount, right? And so we have an upper bound of how large the dividends have been. That's clearly something that we need to be cautious about because we don't know whether the effects are linear or not and whether or not it's going to affect people differently if the amounts are, are considerably larger. But but I think I agree with, with your summary that that I think we, we, we show that there is this demand channel that's important and the reductions, when they do happen, are happening for a subgroup. You know, I, I, w one of the last things I wanted to raise with you was th this idea of external validity or generalizability of a study of Alaska. But you raise a, a, a good point, which is forget whether it's Alaska or not. The other generalizability question is the size of the payment. And people talking about a universal basic income of 10 or 20 or $30,000 is a, is a fundamentally different policy than the type of policy you're studying here. You know, it's it's a limitation that's really important. I think it, it gives us information, but it's very, very hard to, you know, again, uh, extrapolate and say that the effects are linear or that, you know, this is what we're going to see if, if it's 
two or three or four times the size and then represents, you know, a true income floor, right? And so, because that's how people think about uh, a UBI. Uh, I mean, re regarding the, the Alaska specific results, I mean, again, I, like I said, yes, clearly there are differences, but I mean, what, what I always say is at the end of the day, we're studying the behavior of individuals, right? And so, and the behavior of these individuals and their demographics are not terribly dissimilar from those of the average resident in the average state, right? And so I think that, that the extrapolation because of the, the smaller size of the PFD potentially is, you know, more noteworthy than this is an Alaska-specific study. Because at the end of the day, again, it's it's behavioral effects of recipients as opposed to studying, you know, the place itself. Because uh, at the end of the day, these are people receiving money and responding to the incentives, right? And so, but 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 clearly, there are there are limitations that are that are noteworthy. So, with those caveats in mind, you know, that the payments are relatively modest, and that that the study was based on one state. What guidance or advice? would you offer to policymakers or advocates of these sorts of policies that are considering adopting or proposing universal cash transfer type programs? Uh, think very, very carefully about where the money is coming from. Think very, very carefully about how often you want to distribute the money, meaning should they be quarterly payments? Should they, should they be once a year? Know that at some point, and it's happening in Alaska right now, there is going to be tension between welfare programs and this distribution, right? And so, uh, again, the, the thing that I tell people most is if you had a dollar left, how would you allocate it, right? And so would you use it towards Medicaid or would you use it towards an unconditional cash transfer? Maybe it's not a fair question, but it, but it's but it's a, an important one and one that, that Alaska is grappling with right now. And, you know, the researcher in me says you need to make sure that you're studying this, right? And so start with pilots, uh, play around with the amounts, play around with when it's distributed, how often it's distributed, because I think that those margins are all really, really important. I think that there is a whole lot that we can learn from these Alaska specific studies. But like I said, the limitations are that, you know, it's the, the largest amount to ever have been distributed is less than $3,000. So, you know, be cautious. Yeah, yeah I, th I think you're spot on. And, and I think that's uh, some good words of wisdom uh, to end on for because I know this is a this is a policy issue that is is not going away anytime soon. And, and a lot of different groups and a lot of different people are thinking about different twists uh, on this sort of policy. So I think your study is very informative and helpful for them. And I think your advice is, is, uh, is spot on. So thanks again for taking the time to talk to us about your important research. And listeners can, can find the paper coming out in JPAM very soon. Our guest today was Dr. Musin Gatabi, Associate Professor of Economics at UNC Wilmington. And uh, thanks again for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Great. Well, I'm your host, Seth Gershenson from American University, signing off and hope to see you next time. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management, in conjunction with American University's School of Public Affairs. Please follow us on the APAM website and search for the JPAM podcast.